What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martin. Swagger Dave, what's going on, man? Golden Globe nominations are out and that's all I got on that. But how you doing, Pat? Moving on to our next topic. Um, yeah, I'm good, man. Um, Golden Globes, you know, if you want to check our opinions on it, I think we both sent out a tweet pretty much describing uh, our thought process on the matter, which is pretty much we don't care. Um, so uh, follow us, though, especially Dave at, at Martin Swagger, uh, S-W-A-G-R, and myself, mm-hmm. Shooting World Peace, as well as, as well as the podcast on Twitter at Nostalgia Pod. And also go to SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com slash Nostalgia Pod to listen to the podcast any way that you enjoy, especially on Spotify. Give us that that follow on there. Um, we got a pretty packed show today, Dave. You're going to be talking about a couple of movies. I made it to see a couple of movies as well, a couple of albums. But unfortunately, we're starting off today with a very sad topic. Juice World, uh, up-and-coming rapper, dead at age 21. Um, had a medical emergency at was a Chicago International Airport mm-hmm. and going home. Had a seizure and that was it. Um, Dave, give me uh, give me your initial reaction, just your overall thoughts on the matter. Yeah, obviously very sad. Uh, you said only twenty one. Juice World definitely had a lot more to give to the music community. That goes without saying. Um, and you know, obviously, just a big shock coming out of nowhere. It's not like he was um, sick or in poor health or anything. But on the other hand, once you think about it for a second, someone who openly, very candidly discussed his drug abuse and demons—it's uh, not entirely unexpected. And fortunately, it's just another sad uh, reminder that. Uh, this is something that's very pervasive just in the world in general, but certainly in, in the music industry, just, you know, abuse of uh, prescription drugs and lean and all that. And, you know, as far as what Juice World represented in music, he's kind of the last uh, big Titan for his kind of wave, you know, the SoundCloud rap, the blending of genres uh, to go down little peep 2017 X murdered last year. And now Juice World, going out the same similar way to the Peep. You know, it's just it's uh, very very sad and kind of, I mean, kind of just leaves you thinking about what you know what what could have been. But I'm, what was your reaction? Uh, when you text me about it, I mostly was just shocked um, and sad. You know, it feels like we've been talking about this way too often, and especially with him and his peers. Um, I mean, we had just been talking about death race for love earlier this year um and before that future and juice world last year it's uh he's been up and coming um obviously a lot of potential there and you know for uh like you said a genre like soundcloud rap where i think the the variance in quality of the artist there is pretty uh stark he definitely rose to the top and to see um see this kind of talent just gone is is sad and if it, it feels like it happens once a year if not more now which is just mm-hmm. also uh you know probably par for the course but also like it's still a hard pill to swallow 
Yeah, of course, a similar uh, way Mac Miller went out. And, of course, ASAP Yams, really the first notable one several years ago now. And even uh, French Montana right now is kind of in the hospital having a lot of medical issues. Don't know exactly why, but you can connect the dots with the way he's lived his life. And it's just uh, you just hope one day things will get to a different point. You know, you listen to people like ASAP Ferg or Smoke Perp, whoever it might be, just talk about how they have gotten off that kind of lifestyle and how it wasn't good. And it seems like everyone knows it's not good. But then the other hand, you have people like Juice and even people that are not nearly as celebrated like Little Pump just kind of doing their thing. You know, I just hope uh, people can see the lesson because it's just really sad. And, you know, speaking to the music again, just where a lot of Juice World's uh, peers, their talent in like the genre blending was like more theoretical, more um, potential laden. Juice World had hit records. He had lots of really good songs on top of having a lot more potential, right? Um, and that's honestly what I think is really going to suck because he had legions of fans that really connected with him. I mean, there's a famous video from uh, Bronny James, his, uh, his travel team all singing the words to, I believe, robbery, acapella. Like, the kids fucking love Juice World, And it's just really sad, you know? I mean, I mean, the kids like X, too. And thought, thoughts about X aside, you know, it's just another one, another one gone. It's just, it's just really, really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely a tragedy. And I'm sure people will be, uh, be listening to Juice World and, uh, to honor him, but also for a while, because certainly he, his... Uh, influence was was strong even for the short period of time that he was in the game um unfortunately you know there's never like a good way to move on from this but maybe talking about another up-and-coming young rapper might be a good way to to honor him and that's uh roddy rich um yeah so roddy rich what dropped the first mixtape um back in 2017 uh-huh feed the streets yes, uh, sir Followed that up the next year with Feed the Streets 2 and it was his first album proper with yep. Please Excuse Me for Being Antisocial. Good title. I like this title. Yeah. And he, I think it gives off a, an interesting vibe to who Roddy Rich is as an artist. Um, kind of, you know, not being super familiar, I think I knew like maybe one or two of his songs. Like I think Die Young was a song I was aware of. Um, I didn't really know what to expect from this. And this was a lot more like soulful, like stripped back, like piano type <laughs> uh, jams than I expected. Um, but I thought it, I thought it landed pretty well. Um, I, I think there were some songs that were a bit cringeworthy. Um, if I, if, if I had to <laughs> maybe describe them, but there's a Harambe bar on here. Didn't need that. <laughs> yeah. Also, man, what was the song? Um, I think it was like thick something or, uh man it was back seat that's what it was uh <laughs> oof. <With dollar sign. laughs> yeah that that song was a tough listen but there's there's still i think some good things to like on here how did you feel about his first real album yeah going in i had uh only really attached myself to a bunch of the singles like the feed the street two feed the streets projects uh, every season and die young where the really the two songs kind of took him took him off real fast i think it was a uh, Odell Beckham posted uh, a video of his with, I think, Die Young in the, in, in, on, the, on the audio, and that's really what kind of set it off and made the XSL freshman list this year. We kind of expected that, called that one. Um, and just, you know, judging off those two, first two big hits, 
like die young truly is a huge record like there's videos of him performing that overseas where the crowd sings literally the entire song like it, it really is a massive song and then before this album comes out we have racks in the middle nipsey hustle featuring roddy rich two la guys that song is since grammy nominated uh, great song then later in the year we have the dj mustard album and off that we have ballin the best song on that album also grammy nominated so really just becoming a star really fast but he was only 21 years old and then we get this album and yeah like you said i think it's uh kind of speaks to the vibe you get from rex in the middle to be honest where i mean like he ends this on war ready or war baby sorry with uh like a chorus right? like, a, like a soul chorus mm-hmm. and it's good because i think the appeal of roddy rich the whole time has been that he's someone who is in that singy rappy mold but he's still really good at conveying his emotions and kind of bringing that like street pain he's kind of like like west coast a boogie with more i think more lyrics and he kind of reminds me of like little dirk but way better so i'm a big fan of this and i think i think overall this album it it could have been a little shorter but overall i think most of these songs are pretty darn good and it starts off really great with intro within the box so Mm -hmm. i enjoyed this a lot yeah i I really was surprised in a good way with the the overall sound of this album like uh like the song pita i really liked it has those freaking flutes in it that just like i feel like take it to the next level um yeah just a lot more soulful um and i I thought the a lot of the features on here were were pretty good too like i thought gonna start with me was pretty good um I also, I mean, the the dollar sign song aside, I thought <laughs> a boogie was was pretty good on tiptoe. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. I, I thought there, there's a lot to like here. Um, I think there's still a lot of room to grow for for this young rapper, but definitely has the time to grow. So a lot of very promising stuff. Um, maybe work on some of the bars, but yeah. overall, not bad. I mean, what what rapper doesn't have cringeworthy bars at some point, right? It's just statistics, you know, <laughs> yeah, just, part, just part of the game. Um, you know, moving on from Roddy Rich, though, to someone who's equally as young, Camille Caballo, uh, romance. I mean, we were talking Camille last year with a debut album since first since leaving Fifth Harmony, which mm-hmm. crazy that she was in Fifth Harmony and then what, 21 releasing her first album like she's she's been around for a while and still very young she she was out the door with fifth harmony for a while obviously yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah i mean that uh that first album camilla i think that was a bit of a surprise like a, in, a, in a good way uh, i think it kind of turned some heads about the kind of talent because again usually what happens when groups break up is they feel artistically um reined in We'll probably see more of that with Harry Styles this coming Friday, but she actually, you know, showed us I think a lot of uh, a lot of other sides that just weren't part of being in a a group of five, you know, pop group of five. And obviously, Havana was a massive Juggernaut song released a few months before the album, but I mean that's got like over a billion views on YouTube at this point. Massive song, and even if it's like I think it's a much more conventional song than people think. People think, oh, you know, here's dip it into the Cuban roots and bringing, bringing, bringing Spanish stuff to 
to the mainstream US. I don't know if it's, it's quite that profound, but it's a banger song and that's good enough for me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And honestly, the, like I was excited for this follow-up just because I was really high on that album and you know, other, other songs like In, In the Dark and uh, or, uh, Into It, you know, lots of uh, cool album cuts on that. But leading up to the second one, Romance, which, I mean, the title was only out for a few months and we didn't know these were lead-up singles until a while after they came out. And it was like, I just did not have the same level of anticipation for this album. And I think part of that was the lead single this time is Senorita with Sean Mendes, her now boyfriend. And I just don't like Senorita at all. So I was really ah, not excited. Yeah. You, you don't like Senorita. I think it's very bland. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pop song. Um, Sean Mendes, man. It's what you get from Sean Mendes. Right. I guess the other thing too, it's like they were friends for so long I just refuse to believe they are actually dating and now they're actually dating. <laughs> it's like enough already. When you perform this song, just please kiss. Everyone's tired of the anxiety. <laughs> you know, Camilla, I think, continues on this album to do what you talked about in that first album, which is, I think, showing a little bit more of her range in this. Um, there's some very like interesting production choices in some of these songs. Like, you know, the second track, Living Proof, um, I don't even really know how to describe the beginning. It's like there's like a tape being played in reverse and then it comes in with all these like different like clicks to kind of like create the beat in a way around it. And it's it's very like, I don't know, experimental almost in a way, not something mm-hmm. I would have ever expected on a Kamiya album. And I think it's I think it's successful in terms of crafting a song to varying degrees. But um, still, I give her props for trying. Um, and then... She kind of goes all over the map, right? She still got some of the bangers on here. Um, my oh my, with the baby, which w- when he comes in with the "Let's go," <laughs> I was like, "Yes!" Like the baby fucking killing it this year. Um, He's on the Quavo 2017 run. Every feature he can possibly do, just securing all the bags, but also doing a really good job. Yep, he's killing. Fun to see. Fun to see. Um. But then you have like Liar, which kind of calls back to that Havana vibe, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Cuban, Hispanic type feel to it. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a song like First Man, which is uh, a ballad song about her father. Fairly generic, um, you know, like father-daughter song, I feel like. But um, still, you see her trying to like reach different depths of her artistry, which I think is, is great. Um, but again... I think there, it's done to varying effects on this album, but still, when she wants to crank out a banger, she can crank out a banger. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think creatively, this is kind of uh, more of the same. She doesn't really take that many risks. It's kind of doing a lot of the same stuff from the Havana playbook, and then like the switch up to the slow stuff. But it's it's not anything we haven't really seen her do before, and that's okay if the songwriting is a little better, but I think ultimately the songwriting is so kind of singular focused on just being fucking super in love with Shawn Mendes, you know, and everything leading up to that, just even more top level, just love and adoration, you know, it's just, when is that focused on that, that theme, the writing hasn't really elevated it. So I, I didn't like this as much as the first album, but I think there's really good moments where I'm like, ah, oh, this is the edge I want to see more of songs like, like cry for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of a different vocal delivery, but also a much different beat. And even uh, my oh my, would I mean with Quavo or Quavo with the baby aside, 
Uh, that's a Frank Duke's beat. And yeah. hearing her do that is really cool. But yeah, like Liar, Liars, again, that's the Havana playbook, but not quite to the same level, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is fine. I, I just wish there was a little more, a little more edge or a little more uh, attempt to raise the ceiling on this one. I just don't think it gets there. Yeah, it's funny because uh, outside of My Oh My, I think the uh, I think the best song that she's released or back, best track she's been on in this month has been on the Casey Musgraves Christmas album where <laughs> her and Casey Musgraves sing Rock Around the Christmas Tree together. So, um, you know, it, maybe not her best showing, but I think there's still a lot here to like. Um, we'll, we're definitely going to put My Oh My on, on the playlist. If it's not already on there, it might be. Um, <laughs> But there's 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 some I still think Camille is a, a artist to be watching because she seems to only be starting to figure it out. And I mean, when you're when you're in a relationship with Sean Mendez, can you blame her for not writing about anything else? He's very <laughs> certainly not. Uh, <laughs> also, Senorita already has over a billion streams on Spotify. It's been out like five months or something Stupid. like that. Stupid. Wild. Yeah, it says she's the number three artist on Spotify right now at 56 million listeners. <laughs> Surely that'll go to number one next month once this album's counted so no doubt uh megastar no doubt megastar uh why don't why don't we talk some tv real quick before we jump into all the movies we got and actually i got a dnw here dave because uh i have i did not watch (laughs) silicon valley this season maybe that speaks to just like the state of the show in general this was one of the first shows we ever talked about on nostalgia pod Mm -hmm. when we started off um i think it was at that point in the second or third season um back in third season yeah and we, this has been a show we've, we've rode for. And to be honest, I just did not feel compelled or interested to jump into this last season with, I think, like the middling results of the, the prior season where, you know, you really missed the, uh, the presence of TJ Miller. Um, and the, the, I think the show kind of struggled to find its groove. Did that continue in the season? Did I make a mistake in not watching? Uh, I'd say no. You know, I mean, I, we don't have to get too granular into the actual plot for this final season. Um, I, I kind of want to more just, like, reflect reflect on like what what Silicon Valley did and didn't do right all along, and like what its legacy is. Because, as you said, I think once T.J. Miller left the show, and I, he certainly the, the team was certainly in their right to get rid of him. His, his actions uh, on set and all that, um, Mike Judge and crew, but. They never, the show's never able to replace that energy that he brought, that dynamic. And as we watched the past few seasons, you realize that Silicon Valley like, just never was able to find a role for Monica, which was always unfortunate because she should have represented the marginalized place of women in tech. Mm-hmm. And instead, she was a marginalized woman on a show about tech. <laughs> so that was always very unfortunate. She's always felt very hamstrung to the show. Along those same lines, characters like Big Head, uh, Jin Yang, characters that have amazing moments, hilarious stuff. Just kind of seemed like they were just on the show because to be on the show, everything just became much more contrived with the storylines and ultimately also very predictable. Things how things would go right and go wrong for Richard and Gavin. And you all you kind of would understand ahead of time where they were gonna take these arcs, and they would kind of end exactly where you expected them to. <laughs> And that just, I think it's a little disappointing. You know, the show just started to spin its wheels. Um, that being said, well, it never became like a transcendent comedy the way Veep did. I think there's still a lot to like about Silicon Valley, obviously. And 
I mean, I think ultimately its lasting legacy is probably that it just gave us the star that is Kumail and Johnny, obviously. Also raised the profile of Zach Woods, TJ Miller, Jimmy O. Yang, right? Like, I, there's just, and of course, Martin Starr, who was a child star before. Um, I love middle ditch, bro. I don't know about middle ditch, you know? Like, he, 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 I mean, he's obviously, he's actually a very successful guy now. He's in a lot of stuff. I think my, I mean, what's your favorite thing he's been in apart from Silicon Valley? Like, he was in Godzilla 2. Big deal. No one really cared. He was kind of funny in Zombieland too, but like he hasn't had a great like moment apart from like his Verizon commercials, apart from the show, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, wasn't he in that movie, uh, like Christmas Party or something like that, or uh, Holiday Party, Office Christmas Party? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he was in that. I, I didn't see that, obviously. So maybe that was it. I don't know. Not not a good sign for Mr. Middleditch. Yeah, I can't even find anything to think of it, but that's fine. I mean, I mean, do you have a favorite moment on the show? Oh yeah, the, the best moment on the show of all time is the the jerking off the dicks. Yeah, uh, I mean, mean jerk time. Yep, that's that's by far the moments like lasting legacy in terms of moments. That that first two like the first season is just uh, every episode is straight fire. Um, the dynamic <laughs> in the crew, it's right, it's fantastic. Um, they really could, were never able to recapture that totally after the first season. Right. Yeah. What what you really need is uh, Dick to floor. We call that D two F. I just watched it today. I think the Mean Jerk time scene is, is one of the funniest funniest scenes in television history. I don't think that's hyperbole at all. Yeah, um, but yeah, that was also the height of the show. And that was several years ago now. Yeah, it's crazy because that's the end of what season one, I believe. Is that season one? Yeah, Fuck. I'm pretty sure. 2014 or 13 then? 15? I mean, I don't know. A while ago. Uh, there, I mean, there were definitely a lot of really good moments. I'm trying to remember what his name is. The like the crazy rich guy who kind of pops in and out. Russ Hanneman. Yes, Russ. He's great. <laughs> he had some good moments this season, but again, like towards the end, seeing Russ pop pop back up just for no real reason, just because oh, we have this actor in the ensemble, we need to get him back in there. You know, it's just. Narratively, it was hard to get invested when the same mistakes and resolutions kept happening. But yeah, uh, you know what? I think really um, kind of derailed the show, and it was never able to totally um, get back on track. With was when uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to find what his name was, but the like the first person who was investing in them, uh, the that actor died. Um, oh right, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. Uh, but Laura used to work for him. Yeah, it was. This is great radio right now. <laughs> um, yeah, you're such a good. weird guy. Bertram Gil. No, to Nash Peter. Uh, Christopher Welch. Yeah. Peter Gregory. Um, yes. There and is. when when he passed away uh, after I think it was the second season, they really weren't able to, I think, fill that role effectively. Cause he, he brought such a weird, but funny presence to the show and, you know, embodied like the, the strangeness of tech, but also kind of, he was still kind of like a sweet guy. Um, and they tried to, they tried to like recapture that with Monica's boss. Um, Lori. Yeah. Lori. And she just, I feel like never really caught on the same way and um then they kind of tried to like rebrand her with like trying mm-hmm. 
be friends with Monica or, or kind of being friends with Monica. Monica was her best friend, even though Monica wasn't aware of this. Um, and it just never really fit. She's back and, in the new season, too, in case you're wondering. And, and I think that kind of just led Richard to become like a a character that people just didn't like. You know, I, I, I didn't like Richard at all. And nope. when, uh, when it, with a show like this, it's not like a show like Succession where you could hate all the characters and keep going. Like, if you hate the characters in this, you're just going to be like, oh, I don't need this. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. It's not uh it's not top it's not a top tier comedy, at least after like the second or third season. I feel like it was wasn't in anyone's like top ten list of the year or anything like that. So you really need to make the show like sweet and and uh something that was I think hitting on more cylinders than just being funny and never really found that footing again, which is too bad. Yeah. Uh, but, but skewering tech culture. We can still get more of that. And that that's probably the, the tonally that was probably the best thing about the show. For and, sure. Definitely looking forward to seeing more of that in the future. Yeah, there's definitely a space for that, especially when um, if you anyone that's been following the pod, Dave and I both had social network in our top ten for that exact reason. That it's an incredibly relevant topic and a really well made uh, movie. So right. th- this topic, people want to hear about it. They just uh, maybe need to find a different way to do it. But you know, in talking about um, things that. You need to find a different way to do. I need to find a different way to get to see all these movies that you see, Dave, because Honey Boy is out, and I've been wanting to see the Shia LaBeouf's autobiographical film um, starring himself um, and a couple of actors playing a younger version of himself. He plays his father. Um, How was this movie? Because I've been looking forward to it, but also I feel like all the ads and all the trailers I've seen for it kind of leave me with a very like inquisitive feeling like what's actually going on here yeah so Honey Boy is directed by Alma Hariel who this is her directorial debut she did a lot of music video work in the past and it's based off a screenplay that Shia wrote in 2017 when he was in rehab and it's an autobiographical story about Shia when he's like I don't know, 10, 11, 12-ish range. Obviously a child actor at that time and his relationship with his uh, abusive father who Shia plays in the movie. And young Shia is played by Noah Jupe who we just saw in Ford vs. Ferrari as Ken Miles' son. And um, 20-something Shia who's in rehab and it's kind of the framing device for the movie because Lucas Hedges starts writing the screenplay he's playing of course 20 something year old Shia and it was not exactly what I expected like I knew all like the behind the scenes of it all going in I knew it was autobiographical right but when I watched it it was um kind of interesting just because I ultimately was left a little a little cold to the the themes of the movie because it's ultimately a very therapeutic story that Shia literally was writing for the betterment of himself, right? And it seems to be he's in a much better space now. Obviously, a lot of substance abuse and emotional issues throughout his adulthood. So we're hoping that's a, a turn, turn has really been cor- uh, turned. But it ultimately felt like that therapy was much more harder to grasp and is inaccessible for the viewer. So there, I, it was just, it was kind of, it's kind of just a strange film to me. But, there are some things you can latch on to, one of which is the performance from Shia himself. 
again, playing his dad, who's a abusive, belittling figure to to young young shy who's called um who's called uh, uh, Otis in the movie, really mean to Otis, but also really like empathetic to him. And you, you learn throughout the story that's because um, Otis's dad was 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 a failure in show business himself. And kind of has this bearing resentment that he kind of takes out on his son, who's supporting him. Basically, Otis is paying his dad to be his guardian. He doesn't have to do it, but he's doing it because he likes his dad. Jesus. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. There's a lot of heavy scenes, and I don't know if we get the whole other side of it. There's some really warm moments too, notably uh, Otis's relationship with. Uh, someone else in the hotel complex he lives. Uh, it's like a young woman played by FKA Twigs, of all people. Hmm. And they have some really good scenes, but it's a little hazy in what they, what they mean. Uh, Natasha Leone plays the mom in the story, but we never actually see her, just hear her over the phone. Or when I saw the credits again, I was like, where the fuck was Natasha Leone? I did not notice her at all. And then I was like, oh, wait, it's the voice. Got it. Um, so this yeah. This movie sounds like every hipster's like, wet dream you have Shia LaBeouf a screenplay <laughs> also starring in it you have FKA Twigs Natasha Leone. like who else is going to be in this day like well how, how much more Brooklyn can we get at this point <laughs> well that's the thing too because you, you would say that and you'd think like oh this will be like really a 24 y right there'll be all this striking mm-hmm. cinematography and these these cool use of colors you really don't have that at all it's kind of much more muted <laughs> Partly because a lot of the settings are kind of dull, but yeah, it, it um it left me a little cold as a, far as a full movie, but I still think it's good, and the performances across the board are strong. So I think if you're interested in anything about it, it's worth it. But I think maybe if we had lost the framing with Lucas Hedges, and it was just solely about Otis and his dad, and not future Otis reflecting on young his young self, if we had maybe been able to understand that as the viewer on our own, not literally have that told to us. Mm. I think that'd be better. But again, for a, this is really, I think Shai's really first foray into screenwriting. It's still a, uh, you know, impressive effort. So unfortunately no one's seeing this movie. It's made like 2 million bucks. Another Amazon studios flop the box office. We keep talking about them. Yeah. Poor Amazon studios um, putting out, Good stuff, maybe not great stuff, but good stuff that should be seen more. Um, it, something else, I'm not sure how it's doing at the box office. Dark Waters, how is that doing right now? Dark Waters is doing, I think, around the same. That's what I figured. Dark, yeah, Dark Waters is interesting because this is actually the first Todd Haynes movie that's any kind of studio release. Todd Haynes, of course, is famous for kind of coming up in that new independent cinema wave in the late 80s, early 90s, alongside like Soderbergh, of course, and also Gus Van Zandt. But while Soderbergh, of course, got a little more mainstream, of course, made Oceans trilogy and all that, um, Todd Haynes really kind of sucked to the beat of his own drum. He's a filmmaker that I was not really uh, familiar with for a long time just because he didn't make anything mainstream. But, you know, as you look back, you realize he's definitely a, a figure of like queer cinema. You know, movies like Poison. And of course, Carol, which came out in 2015. You'll see that on lots of best of decade lists this month. Definitely a widely, widely celebrated film with Rooney Mar and Kate Blanchett. 
and he had one instruct come out for Amazon in 2017, but now he's back with Dark Waters, which is funny because it's, I've seen a lot of people that are more familiar with his uh, filmography describe it as the least Todd Haynes movie he's ever made because again, it's out with focus more, but it's just, it's just, it's a legal drama, you know, it's not a, it's a much more straightforward movie than I from what I've gathered the rest of his filmography uh, is, but I like Dark Waters a lot because yeah. I think it's just an incredibly effective story. And for those of you, it's not going to really spoil it, but it is history. It's based off this Nathaniel Rich 2016 New York Times Magazine article. And it's about this lawyer, Robert Bloat, played by Mark Ruffalo, who basically just went to town in court against DuPont, the chemical company. Of course, you know, Jeff Gordon car, everyone knows the logo. Uh, and just took all these suits over like 15 years against DuPont for uh, poisoning the local community in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and subsequently poisoning basically the whole country uh, through the use of PFOAs, this kind of synthetic chemical that is in Teflon or was in Teflon. And, you know, Ruffalo, of course, is, is the lead. He's in just about every scene. He's quite good in it. It's, uh, he, he gets to say a bunch of they news. I was going to ask. Oh, this, this is in the they knew genre. This is not to the high levels of Spotlight. This spotlight, spotlight definitely is much bigger and, and grander than this. But mm-hmm. I think Dark Waters, if, if you like that kind of stuff from Ruffalo, this is it. Like, <laughs> they knew and they did nothing. Like, like this is it. Like, he literally yeah. says they knew twice in the movie. And no. I was like, this is exactly what I wanted, though. <laughs> because the rest of the movie is so smart and I think tons, uh, so, so strong that you can, la- you can get something so meta in there, you know? And I wonder if Todd Haynes is like, <laughs> acknowledge that. I haven't, I haven't been able to find any uh, acknowledgement of it. But, um, you know, along the way, you have Anne Hathaway, who plays the wife figure, where um, and, you know, I think what's smart about Dark Waters is that as Ruffalo's character is getting consumed by this case that is taking years and years, we're seeing the effect it has on his family and how he's really just focused solely on the case and little else. And Hathaway's kind of representing that. Still kind of an underwritten part, but you know, Anne Hathaway's quite good. So she can, I think, elevate that. Tim Robbins plays his uh, uh, boss at his firm. And then we have Victor Garber, who plays the uh, executive head of DuPont. And then Bill Camp, who is awesome in this, plays the uh, uh, farmer who kind of brings the case to Ruffalo in the first place when his cows are dying from like tumors and shit from the chemicals. And ultimately, I think what makes the movie so good is like you, you can kind of, if you look up the story, you can kind of guess how it'll be told, right? But Dark Water such a, does such a good job of making your blood boil and also just hammering home the corporate indifference that we've unfortunately come to expect here in our country and you know uh, negligence when it comes to the environment and stuff like that. And it's really... Uh, just a really sobering story and really unfortunate stuff. But, you know, as far as legal drama goes, I think it's really good. So yeah, Dark Waters. Uh, if, you, if that's something you're into, I'd recommend it. Or if you're just interested in the story, I'd say go on Wikipedia and then be, be really mad. But it, it, it's good stuff. They knew! Uh, <laughs> man, that's, that's great. Ruffalo just being ridiculous is always fantastic. Um, definitely something I want to check out. But I was fortunate enough to get to see Parasite finally. Bong Joo-ho's uh, 
modern masterpiece. Um, Damn you right. Had it, you had it in your top 15? Top 10? Jeez, for Eight, the I decade. Um, which is saying a lot for a movie that just came out. And you were like, yeah, I want to... I want to put this lower only because I haven't had the the time to really reflect on this and see if it has the lasting impact. But I think we are in your words. I'm happy to move it up higher. So <laughs> uh, it, it, this is, I mean, I think to say the least, um, definitely a modern classic and masterpiece. And the fact that we might in back to back years have a foreign film nominated for best picture is pretty remarkable because this film deserves it uh you know so i made it to the to a four fifteen showing on a friday and it's been out for a while now yeah i, I saw it in october yeah and uh so this is two months later i went in and the theater was pretty much packed i'd say three-fourths okay. of the way packed um now i wasn't like a small theater but that i'd say there probably was about 100 people there um wow. and uh you know the it probably helps that it's it's uh, near a lot of old people. So there were uh, the crowd was mostly old people, but still mm-hmm. people are coming to see this movie. And I left that theater with my girlfriend and we talked about it for the next like three hours. Like we got dinner, we chatted about it. And it's a perfect film, I think, to see on a date with somebody because all you want to do afterwards is talk about all the different themes, the metaphors. Every single frame of this is just so like, precise <laughs> you know you you've talked to ad nauseum in our review and then in our a decade uh, all decade pod for best movies about how uh bong juho he doesn't tape any, he doesn't film anything besides what he needs yep. and he is so precise and puts so much thought into every single piece of this film it's truly like just a feat of filmmaking and uh I think of writing too, um, which this did just receive a best uh, screenplay, uh, not at the Golden Globes or whatever that's worth. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, a good sign for the Oscars. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you, you've talked a lot about it. Now, now we get a chance to dig in a little deeper. What what did you want to talk about when you reviewed that you thought thought maybe would be a, a good place to dig in here? Yeah, so when you start watching Parasite and once um the son in engenders himself to this wealthy family and kind of gets, uh, you know, scams his way in, right? Shout out TJX six scam gang. But then he realizes he's going to do with his whole family. And then you watch that in amazing detail, how that, that comes to be like, Oh wait, the family's all here. Fuck. This is, this is wild. Right. Take down the man, right. Fuck the rich kind of shit. And it's awesome. It's so thrilling the whole time. And you're like, oh, the parasites, I get it. And then you realize there's literally parasites in the fucking basement. Yep. And it completely plays off of that initial understanding of the title. And it continues to be just as thrilling. Like, it just fucking blew blew my mind. Yeah. From that moment when they're all there together and then they go into the basement uh when the old housekeeper shows up mm-hmm. it it goes from being this movie where you're just kind of like oh this is really interesting like these like schemers like plotters and then it becomes like something totally different and there's so many more layers to everything yeah. that's going on um and it, it starts to, 
being such a commentary on class um, on wealth, the, mm-hmm. the corruption that wealth has on people, as well as I think the, the patterns that people are engendered to based on their own classism. I also thought, you know, um, I thought it was really funny at po- parts. Oh, and it God, was, yeah. Oh, my God. The, it was uh, today I went into work talking to my coworker, and I was telling him I saw this movie and they were like, so how would you describe it? And it was funny because the first thing I said was it's very metaphorical. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, that's what the guy says in the movie. But that's exactly <laughs> what I, the word I would use to describe this is that there's so many metaphors at play. There's so much meaning packed into this movie. Um, yeah. And I, I've been debating it with, uh, you know, anyone I know that that's seen this, like the um, our interpretations of it, and that I think that's what makes elevates this movie so much is it goes from being just a really well made movie to one that you just want to dissect, which is funny mm-hmm. to talk about a parasite in that sense, but um, yeah, it's it's really amazing. It's definitely going to be top three for me for this year, for sure. Um, not sure if it'll be number one, but it's up there. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved. Uh... Song Kang Ho, he plays the dad. Yeah, he's uh, a regular in almost all of Bong's movies. Uh, he's incredible in this, and you know, you spoke about your theater being packed. This movie's coming up on twenty million dollars here in the states, already over a hundred overseas. It's really impressive to see a, a foreign language movie actually do this well here, mm-hmm. which is awesome to see. Absolutely. Again, ultimately, it's an it's it's a movie with Korean. It's in Korean with subtitles, and it's, it's long. That's in, inherently not for everyone. But I've really yet to meet anyone who's actually seen it that doesn't have isn't gushing with praise. Mm-hmm. And even just the filmmaking aspects, we've I think stated stated well enough that Bong's very precise with with his his scene construction. But there's also just amazing shots in general. Like I remember the race home in the rain. Oh my god! Where I, I don't know if that was on a drone or what, but when we're kind of like a far away in that valley and they're running down the hill, it almost reminds you of some like landscape, like video game action. The way characters are platforming or something that that that, that blew my mind. Um, but the tension is really maintained the whole time. I think the way the shots are lined up really helps that. And funny enough, I mean. The that was not a real house. The house was just a series of two sets. Mm-hmm. But you would not know it watching the movie. No. Um, yeah, man. I I mean, fuck. It's something that like I feel like as soon as people see it, it kind of like consumes their their thoughts for like the next day. You know. <laughs> yeah. Just because. I, now I want to watch it again, knowing what happened, just so I can really just lock in on everything mm-hmm. else. Because the first time you watch it. Once the reveal happens, and you, I think you're just kind of on the roller coaster at that point because again, it's a, it's a black comedy, but it's also a thriller. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, not enough good things to say. And it, and it is thrilling for sure. Um, what one part I wanted to debate with you because I was having this discussion with with my girlfriend, um, her fiance now. <laughs> she, we we were talking about at the end when uh, spoilers at this point. If if you're watching and haven't watched Parasite, I'd say turn it off, come back when you can. Um, When they're at that party at the end and the, the Parasite from the basement has been stabbed with the, the shish kebab sword, you know, and 
the the dad the rich dad is reaching down for the keys and he's he's like doing the smell well how how do you think or what do you think was going through the 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 poor dad's mind what do you think or was he offended because he was being he smelled just like this other person smelled that he thought was lower than him did you did you take that as um he was like angry with the dad for um not like not being able to get his own hands dirty like i've seen a lot of interpretations of that, that. huh mm, i hadn't noticed the smell part you know when I, I i i think i just read that as he was he saw the true the true classism mm-hmm. and knew that they would never be accepted and when you're literally seeing that where like this rich guy doesn't want to save this poor person he's only worried about saving his own next of kin who happens to be wealthy i think that's what i saw there yeah but again i like to see it again just so now that i can try i have the action trapped in my mind i can just kind of focus more on the themes um yeah yeah i didn't even realize that was a a, a scene that was being uh, examined that way yeah well it it may not be that was something i was i was definitely debating uh, and i was left thinking about a lot just because that that scene also there's so much heaviness to um with how the, the the poor dad and the rich dad are talking about love in relationships and right. kind of how that plays out um, between the two uh, the two classes, I guess, is the commentary. There's just so much to dig, to dig into. I feel like we could do like a whole hour-long podcast just dissecting this movie, and who knows? Maybe in the future we will. But <laughs> um, we also have another great movie to talk about that was released on Netflix this past Friday. Go see Parasite. And also, go watch Marriage Story. Um, Dave already gave a non-spoiler review about Noah Baumbach's most recent film. Um, just received a bunch of nominations at the Golden Globes. Both Driver and ScarJo uh, received nominations, as well as the movie for Best Picture. Um, yeah. Uh, Marriage Story. I thought this was fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> Driver is amazing in this. Um, you know what I think I liked most about this film is, uh, so it's about, you know, Charlie, who's this up and coming theater director in New York mm-hmm. city. And this felt I, a lot I'd say, like, I say established. He's pretty successful. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. He receives this, this is a huge grant and award and being called a genius for his work. Um, it felt like a play in a lot of parts, mm-hmm, you know, um, you know, whether it was Scarlett Johansson walking around Lord Dern's office, doing a monologue about what, you know, their, their marriage and how she lost herself within it. Or, you know, the, like the court scene between Laura Dern and Ray Liotta, or even that, the, like the big fight felt like something that could have happened in a film, maybe, maybe, or in a theater performance. It wasn't played up to the same effect. I feel like it would have been in, in person, but, um, still like punching the wall and driver breaking down in tears, man, um, all incredibly effective. And I, I thought that this was just fantastic. And that, that final scene where he's sitting with his son and he finally reads the letter from the beginning when Adam driver gets that lump in his throat and that lip quiver, man, it hit me. Like it, it, it got me. I was mm-hmm. so sad at that point. There were definitely some, some, some real dusties, flying oh, yeah. around the Sheehan household over here. Um, <laughs> now, now that you get to talk spoilers on the pod, Dave, what, what stood out to you? And let's dig in a little bit more into this. Yeah, yeah. So I saw it like, uh, geez, about a month, a month and a few days ago now at the 
independent film festival in Boston. Um, and yeah, check the spoiler review out if you want. But yeah, man. Um, not a big Noah Baumbach guy. Just haven't seen a lot of his films. Talked about that before. Um, but I kind of knew the knew the vibe he's had, or he's had a reputation to have anyway. And I've seen some people say that he kind of makes the same movie every time. And if that's the case, it feels like this is the best one. This or Francis Ha, it seems are pretty universally being held up. Um, when when they have that fight. Like when ScarJo and Driver finally have really just let out because they've just been growing apart throughout the whole movie, and ScarJo's character is the one who's much more invested in desiring of the split, mm-hmm. and Driver hasn't yet come to terms with why that is. When they have that fight, and like the whole time too, I said before, I think this is Scarlet's best performance, hmm. and it's funny because a lot of the discourse around this movie has been that it's ultimately about driver's character and he certainly is in more scenes and he has more, more lines, but I think it's incredibly fair to both, both perspectives in the story. So I don't really see that as a negative. I think ultimately they had to pick someone mm-hmm. to lead with. Um, and again, it is somewhat a biographical nature to this with Bombax. So you really right. can't blame him for writing it this way. Right. Um, but when they had that fight, and like, man, they're just tearing into each other. And like, the whole, like you mentioned, there's sniffles in the movie. There's sniffles before this scene. In general, I think you're at this point, the audience is incredibly invested in the storytelling because performance is so strong. There's scenes of amazing humor and also incredible dread, you know, bookending each other throughout the screenplay. It's an impressive script. But when you have that fight scene and like really just laying into each other and you're just like, man, not only is this over, but I want it to be over too. Yeah. <laughs> and like, dr- yeah. like driver, like we've espoused praise for him for a while the past few weeks, but like when he just goes full Kylo and he's like, I wish you would die. And yeah. it's like, Holy shit. And like yeah. he slams the wall and you're just like, good grief. This is, this is fucking dark. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I think I literally just went, Ooh, yikes. <laughs> like when, when he ended that, both of my, my girlfriend and I were sitting there. We like looked at each other. And we're like, Ooh. <laughs> went a little too far. But then, but then you see him like break down like immediately, you know, and yeah. you, you see that he's not this, like right. this monster who's saying this thing. He's this person who's been, they call each other honey, like the next right. day, you know? Yep. Yeah. They, he's been totally emotionally destroyed. And, you know, in, in one sense, I, I've been seeing this a lot starting to be called a, uh, like a, divorce court drama you know or, or procedural in, in a sense kind of give everybody the feel of like what it goes through but I, so much more than that yeah the, the, it is so much more than that and i think where where i really connect with the movie is just like the devastation of of like giving yourself to another person and how you how you can get so far down the line with something before you start to like recognize like, Oh, I'm in way too deep to this or the, or I've gone, I've gotten to a place I don't want to go. And how do I get myself back out of here? Um, or this person is getting themselves out. I don't want them to get out. And like, how, how do I reconcile that this person who felt like such a part of me is now apart from me? Um, just really, whew, it was, it was heavy, but also funny. Like, Merritt Weaver, <laughs> as, awesome. As, yeah, 
fantastic. And the 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 scene where where, where she serves him is maybe the funniest scene of the year. I mean, <laughs> goddamn when she, when she goes into that weird voice uh, accent and he's like he starts echoing back and he's like, "Oh, what is this?" and she's like, "Oh, <laughs> hold on, let's try this again." <laughs> I was just dying laughing. It was what is like, she talking about like a pie or something too? Or what yeah, is it like a cake? I forget. Oh god. Uh, so it good. Was fantastic and just done so well. Is there any divorce papers? Yeah. Uh you're getting a divorce. <laughs> she like runs out of the room. Um yeah, and also uh you know, it ends in a very sweet way, which I think is like if, if this didn't end in a sweet way, if this just kind of left it like devastated, I probably wouldn't feel the same way. I think the ending works really well for me because um it leaves with the idea of hope, which you're sitting with these with this crumbling relationship um and and really i think feeling very like frustrated with with both characters at different points like the whole time you know a driver's character charlie is trying to get nicole Levi scarjo to just talk and she she just won't you know the lawyers say it's better if we don't and then she finally comes around to talk and that's when they have this huge fight it feels like things could have just been avoided if they talked um where as then you find out you know, driver was cheating on her and um, was no saint himself within all this. And there's issues all around. Um, so to end it on a sweet note and that there's some hope, I think really helps me leave with like a, a sweet taste in my mouth. And also just feeling like this movie touches on a lot of different themes, but doesn't ultimately leave you feeling like wrecked, which it certainly could have. Right. I saw some like people that were less warm on the movie saying that they would have preferred if it was more focused on the legal stuff before, as you said, mm-hmm. it was notably with Lord and Ray Liotta and Alan Alda, you really have three memorable performances that really kind of perk up the movie and like act two. Yeah. But again, I, I, I just, unless you just totally did not connect with those emotional beats at the start, I don't see how you want the focus to shift like that. Because again, I think from scene, from scene one, when they're at the mediator meeting and reading the letter about what they like about each other, and then you're like, oh, wait, but they're getting divorced. Like, if that isn't hook, line, and sinker, I, I, I just don't know why that wouldn't work on someone. Yeah. You know, um, I, think, I think that just speaks to how good Alda, Leoda, and Dern are. And especially right. I want to see Leoda and Dern go up against each other more. Because that, that scene, almost more than the actual fight scene, was was just hard to watch how they were both like staring at the table and just like throwing more and more mud across the aisle at each other. Um, but through their lawyers and how like disengaged they were, but then Leota and Dern are so like on their A game. It's really great scene. Just, I think that's the thing I keep coming back to is how it's scene after scene after scene where I'm like, Oh, that, right. that was great. Oh, that was fantastic. Yeah. I really love how they did that there. Um, that's why I think the script is really one of the true standouts too, just yeah. because the way he constructs a story the whole time. It's not really engaging, but I think just the way he can juggle all those emotional beats mm-hmm. the whole time, taking you scene to scene works yeah. really well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, these two films, Parasite and Marriage Story, certainly up there for best of the year. Um, I'm excited to, to see 1917 and Little Women and kind of round out that list. And obviously Star Wars, which I don't know if he'll make it on, but um, just a lot of really good film and, and yes, well, sir. Yeah. Just a, a good year in, in movies in general. 
maybe we should wrap up there because I feel like we could go on for a while more and <laughs> we've been going on for long enough. What should the people be watching for next week, Dave? Well, Marvel's Mrs. Maisel season three is already out. We'll be talking about that next week. Ch- the Watchmen finale comes out on Sunday. Give me that big blue schlong. Hell yeah, bro. <laughs> uh, Six Underground, Michael Bay's Netflix movie with Ryan Reynolds comes out on Friday. That trailer looks Michael Bay as hell. I'm in. Let's <laughs> Michael go. Michael Bay as hell is the right way to describe it. Um, oh, Richard Jewell, the Clint Eastwood movie with Paul Walter Hauser. That comes yes. out this weekend. So does Jumanji too. But um, I think that's a lot of things to watch right there. Yeah. And then on the, on the music front, we got uh, Harry Styles, Fine Line, oh, Storm- oh, Stormzy, oh, second album, hot off a of Glastonbury headlining. Yeah, dog. Also, uh, the Free Nationals, Anderson Pack's live band is dropping their debut album. Nice. It's that lead single that had the first posthumous uh, Mac Miller appearance. So ah, great. That's a lot of stuff. And we'll be talking about our best uh, television of the decade in short order as well. So subscribe and stay tuned, please. Yeah, hit that subscribe. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to find out all the ways to follow the podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, just press that subscribe button. Just do it. Just do it. Um, We appreciate you. We'll see you all next week. Peace out.